Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Check Down Charlie's History of the New York Giants. I'm your host Eric, I'm here as always with Theo. How's it going, Theo? Pretty good. Last time I left you, um, we were getting into it with the early 80s and I'm excited to, to continue with this emerging success of the New York Giants. Exactly. Things are looking up for old Big Blue at this point. We left you with the miracle at the Meadowlands and the subsequent events which led to them hiring, among others, Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. We had mentioned before that the 1983 season was a pretty turbulent year for the Giants where they had kind of flip-flopped between Scott Bruner and Phil Simms uh, as their starting QB. Ultimately, they decided to go with Bruner. That didn't work out too well, and it basically almost cost Bill Parcells his job. So they went 3-12-1 that season. Prior to that point, Phil Simms had three seasons end prematurely due to injury since being drafted in 1979. And once Bruner was named the starter, Phil Simms had actually asked to be traded, a request that was subsequently denied by the front office. Again, it goes back to free agency and salary cap and basically players' rights. In the 80s, if yeah. you requested a trade... There at the time leaking this information on Twitter. Yeah. So it wasn't going all over the internet and you know starting conversations here and there. It was like, I'm putting in my request. Nope, denied. Yeah, and that oh was well. That. Exactly. There was, no, there was no media saga... That lasted a whole offseason. Right, exactly, exactly. I think, I mean, we could get into sort of the power of free agency and, and how that's given players more control over their careers. Like, you look at somebody like a Jamal Adams, for example, who basically forced his way out of New York and got traded to the Seahawks, whereas, you know, if Phil Simms had tried that, it didn't work out for him, I guess, at that point. Well, it did eventually, but you'll see. So basically... 1983, there was a lot of pressure being put on to Bill Parcells. As well, I think, you know, 1984 was kind of where things would start to pick up. I don't know, Theo, if you actually want to just get into the, the quote about the 1983 season now, we could go from so, there. So Bill Parcells mentions this many times, like post-retirement, where he credits the, the 84 season as the most important moment in his career. So like I pulled this from uh, the NFL uh, main website and they talk about how after 16 games in the 83 season, Bill Parcells was on the ropes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, injury ravaged team, they'd finished three twelve and one and general manager, George Young actually considered firing Parcells as he um, flirted uh, with the idea of hiring um the University of Miami head coach, Howard Schnellenberger, who had a, a pretty big reputation at the time. John Mara, a Giants co- current Giants co-owner, talks about this. He says they had conversations and never materialized. George said something like, let's give Bill another chance. Maybe I can get Schnellenberger next year. So they weren't even completely sold on, on Parcells. Parcells was a pretty unknown commodity. I know he coached Air Force. He had a couple stints in college. Like he was, he, he was definitely weather tested in terms of going to different colleges and working different position groups and stuff. Mm-hmm. But 
he wasn't a real known commodity as a head coach. Yeah. So Parcel knew he was under pressure, and he admits that I think in 1983 I was trying to be a head coach. In 1984, I decided to be Bill Parcells. So he goes, and I kind of made a little promise with myself that I would try to do things my way. And I gave my best effort in that regard. And I really dispensed with the feelings of doing what a head coach was supposed to do. And even uh, John Mara admits this as well. He says that experience changed him. Prior to that, he was pretty easygoing, gregarious, friendly, personable guy. Starting in 1984, he was much more gruff, much more focused. He showed a little mean streak from time to time. He was a different guy, and it worked for him. Mm-hmm. So Parcells always credits this season as the moment that changed the rest of his career. He started to do things his way. He wasn't so focused on the political aspect or the like, you know, the the media aspect of being a head coach. He just wanted to coach the best team possible, right? And really, really focused in. I can also say that it it also like coincided with the roster coming together. You know, it's kind of like, I guess the perfect storm kind of started to form in that 84 season where Phil Sims again, was named the starter in 84. So obviously the experiment with Scott Bruner didn't end up working as they had planned. And 1984 was kind of one of the first seasons that Sims had actually not been injured and his you know, he had been drafted three years ago, generally speaking. You know, today you expect rookies to come out and start, you know, ripping up the league as soon as they're drafted. But really, like, you know, he took that time to develop his game. And Parcells also said that he wanted to kind of open up the offense a little bit more vertically, like the vertical passing game. And, and Sims allowed him to do that, as well as, you know, kind of a philosophical change from, like, his attitude uh, standpoint of, like, you know, instead of trying so hard to be the head coach, I'm just going to go ahead and coach this team like I know how to, you know? Yeah, it's uh, if I could draw a similar parallel to nowadays is that is with uh, Matt Patricia trying to imitate Bill Belichick. Mm. You know, he's trying to imitate in what his mind is a head coach, but really the head coach has to take, uh, the team has to take on his personality, mm-hmm. not Bill Belichick's personality, you know? Right. And it's sort of funny because, like, we'll talk about this later with Tom Coughlin because sort of the reverse happens where Coughlin is such a strict disciplinarian because in his mind, that's what he thinks he needs to push this team forward. But then what really helps him later on with the Giants is to, you know, hold it back a little bit and be a little bit more personal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that is a good a good comparison, actually. So I think 1984, again, would kind of be a turning point for the team. Again, he Sims would throw for 4,000 yards, and the Giants would actually make it to the playoffs. Just for future note as well, they would draft a backup quarterback by the name of Jeff Hostetler in the third round, and they would actually ultimately beat the LA Rams and fall to the San Francisco 49ers in the 1984 playoffs. But again, you can see the kind of progression of the team offensively as well as the defense obviously we mentioned the linebacking core we're going to mention it a little bit more later but things are kind of starting to pick up steam after that 1984 season 1985 kind of allowed them to build off of that uh, and have another positive campaign so it's a quick that 84 season Mm -hmm. they end up losing to the 49ers who were eventual super bowl champions right so 
So it's not like they're losing to, you know, a bottom of the barrel team. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you can sense like an emerging talent here. And funny enough, they lose to the 49ers who has former coach John McVay on the, right. on the, exactly. on the staff. Exactly. Yeah. Ironically, like getting rid of McVay, which we had mentioned in the first episode, kind of starts off a dynasty for another team, but then it also starts the Giants off on their own path. I mean, I would say that you know the 49ers were an actual dynasty, whereas the Giants were, I mean, were very, very successful, but obviously like the team of the 80s was the 49ers. So it's just interesting. You know, even if John... Well, he decided to go into personnel opposed to actually coaching the team. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And who's to say his philosophical approach would be a good marriage with, with the Giants, right? right? Things happen for a reason. Exactly. That's the thing. So again, yeah, there's a lot to build off of You know, entering the 85 season. Uh, it saw the addition of tight end Mark Bavaro, who uh, would turn out to be a pretty key piece in later years. Bill Belichick was named the full-time defensive coordinator under Parcells, even though, you know, he'd probably been doing that job for, whatever, two or three years now. He was actually finally named the defensive coordinator. Phil Simms would also make it to his first Pro Bowl in 1985. And they actually ended up beating the 49ers in the playoffs uh, that season. So, again, they would kind of get that monkey off their back in that sense. And it would mark their first home playoff victory since 1958, which is kind of crazy to think about. It was almost 30 years. But then that gives you a sense of the hope that was building and just how inept and futile the Giants of the 60s and 70s really were. And this is also interesting because they, they did beat the 49ers. And going back to the philosophical approach, like Parcells was all about power football. You know, he's yep. all about having a a grinding team on both sides versus the finesse of the 49ers, Mm -hmm. you know, and they proved initially that they could win it their way, even though the 49ers did have relatively more success in the eighties. That's definitely true. So in 85, the giants actually led the league in sacks, which I mean, again, shows how the linebacking core and the three-four defense was really helping the team in general. However, despite beating the 49ers, they were ultimately dusted by one of the great defenses in NFL history, which is the 1985 Chicago Bears, who again were the eventual champions that season. So they lost 21 to nothing in that game. Yeah, it's interesting because nobody ever talks about how well the Giants were playing on defense that year because comparatively, you're matching them up with arguably the greatest defense of all time. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of people would consider them to be the greatest defense of all time, along with the 2000 Ravens, which, again, will meet the Giants at some point in the future. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's the 85 season. But as you can see, you know, they're kind of building up on their philosophy on defense and on offense and really shaping up to be to be a powerhouse in the NFC. I mean, the two years in a row, they lose to the eventual Super Bowl champions. But you can see that something is definitely building here. I think one of the main pieces here, and uh, I know we, we had mentioned that we would do moments and, and sort of pivotal things, and I think we would be remiss not to mention, you know, one of the impact players of the Giants of the 80s and 90s, 
or I would say the impact player, who is Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence Taylor was drafted second overall in 1981. He was an outside linebacker in that 3-4 system that was implemented by Parcells as the right side linebacker. He became the first player in history to win Rookie of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year in the same year. In 1986, he had 20 and a half sacks and became the second player in NFL history to win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. So clearly, he had an impact not just on you know not just on the team, but obviously he was kind of a generational talent for the Giants starting in the 80s and definitely led them to some success in their future. So I just have a couple of quotes here, actually, just to give you guys a sense of what, you know, the impact that he might have had. So an assistant coach at North Carolina where he played college football, his name is Bobby Kale. So as a freshman playing on special teams, he jumped a good six or seven feet in the air to block a punt, then land on the back of his neck. (laughs) He was reckless, just reckless. So basically... He was supremely athletically gifted to the point where he was able to hone those skills and learn under Parcells and Belichick to become arguably the greatest defensive player of all time. You know, like he was just a freaking wrecking ball out there. Like I would say, do yourselves a favor after this. Pull up highlights of Lawrence Taylor for sure. Like, I don't know, have you... Have you seen many highlights of his, Theo? Or what's your what's your idea of Lawrence Taylor? When I used to watch the NFL Network all the time, anyway, like he's way before our time, right? Yeah. And actually watching football. And what I noticed about him the most is how he was able to just go off script and and still make the play work. Yeah, you know what I mean. He just had his. He would just follow his own instinct. It was it was almost like he was just positionless and would just make the biggest impact on the defense. Right, exactly. It's funny how you mention that because obviously like it all ties into Parcells' philosophical change of just like being like a hard ass, like coach the team properly versus just letting them play. And I think one of the best examples of that is Lawrence Taylor to where, you know, I remember hearing things about how, you know, Lawrence Taylor was supposed to be in coverage on a particular play but then instead, he would just rush the QB, <laughs> sack him, and, and cause a fumble. And, like, the Giants would recover. And it's like, well, how can you get mad at him for that? Like, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The famous line where it's like, Parcells rips on him for doing that. Mm-hmm. And he goes, he goes, well, you didn't do it as it's supposed to be drawn up. He's like, well, whatever it was, you got to put in the playbook for next game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. I mean, I've seen the relationship between Parcells and Taylor described as kind of a love-hate relationship. So, I mean, Parcells often would ride players in the hopes of driving them to better performance. Again, you'll, you'll see this kind of relationship with Sims and with Lawrence Taylor, where it's like they will get into a war of words. But ultimately, if Parcells is hard on you, it's only because he knows that you have the potential to be great, which was certainly the case with with Lawrence Taylor. And like LT was already developing a reputation for playing and living with reckless abandon. So after the 1981 season, which is actually his rookie season, the Giants took out an insurance policy on his life for $2 million. Wow. Like, that is so crazy, man. 
Like, <laughs> can you imagine that happening nowadays? It's nuts. But anyway, he, he won Defensive Player of the Year in 1982 as well, despite the strike shortening the season. And obviously, like, his big kind of claim to fame is, you know, the 20 and a half sacks in 1986, winning the Super Bowl, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> in 1986 with the Giants. But obviously, like, his impact was was felt all across the league. He altered offensive game plans, uh, <clears throat> you know, just based on his impact on, on offenses. Like, he would make it to the Pro Bowl, I think, 10 times in his career. And like, sorry to kind of jump around, but I can see that in a survey before the 1981 draft, 26 out of 28 GMs agreed that LT should be the first overall pick. Luckily for the Giants, one of the two GMs that disagreed was <laughs> Bum Phillips of the New Orleans Saints, who ended up taking one guy ahead of Lawrence Taylor. And that's how the Giants would end up with like arguably the best defensive player of all time. Talking about how he uh, shifted game plans, right? Yeah. You know, we touched on the 1985 season, but a critical moment for Lawrence Taylor was he inadvertently broke Joe Theismann's leg, mm-hmm. which everyone knows as one of the most gruesome injuries in NFL history. Yeah. And, you know, not purposely done. You know, he just played with reckless abandon. But it also did emphasize the importance of the left tackle position in the blind side, right? Mm-hmm. They even made a movie about it. Remember the Michael Orr movie? Yeah. They talked about that incident and how this is one of the reasons why left tackles are paid at such a premium because you're protecting the blind side. Mm-hmm. And one of those reasons was because Lawrence Taylor would always come from that position and completely obliterate the quarterback. And like, I have a note here that says that Joe Gibbs invented the two tight end offense and the H-back position as a way of stopping Taylor from getting to the QB so easily. So they literally like, they had to have extra people blocking and like literal formations were invented to be able to stop this man. Because he was just like a one man wrecking crew, basically. It was crazy. So like running backs couldn't handle blocking him. So Bill Walsh tried with a guard. This left holes open for the middle linebackers to exploit, so they settled on getting the offensive tackle to try to block him. He's also credited with bringing the technique of chopping at the ball in a QB's hands rather than always trying to tackle him. Clearly, like he was trying to force turnovers and have a major impact on the game, which he certainly did. So again, some main points of his career. Obviously, the 1986 won the Super Bowl. He did, you know, obviously have some issues, mainly with substance abuse. So in 1988, he actually had a second positive test for cocaine, and he was suspended for the first 30 days of the season. Uh, He was checked into rehab, but then he also had a game that season against the Saints where he played through a torn pectoral muscle, a torn pec, (laughs) seven tackles, three sacks, and two forced fumbles. And they Some people are wired differently, man. Dude, I yeah. Maybe he's maybe he had a little bit. <laughs> maybe he had something in the system that allowed him to play through that. But uh, I mean, Jesus, man, like Jesus Christ, the guy. You know, he's unstoppable, man. Unstoppable. 1989, he actually had 15 sacks and played through a fractured tibia. You know, like your pain, like just. I know. Not even just playing through pain, just performing at 
the highest level while injured. Exactly. This is already like eight seasons in, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the average lifespan of an NFL player is like, what, three, four years. This guy's yeah, been doing it yeah. for almost a decade and he's got 15 sacks and plays through a fractured tibia. Like that's absolutely nuts, man. Absolutely nuts. In 1990, he was also a part of the team that started out 10-0 and and also, you know, helped them to another Super Bowl victory. 1991 actually ends up being the first season that he's not named an All-Pro. And again, 1992, that's when the injuries kind of catch up to him and uh, he actually ruptured his Achilles tendon uh, and that kind of ended his season. But ultimately, he would retire in 1993 after 13 years again he is kind of known for changing the outside linebacking position to having a much more aggressive role in 3-4 defenses their main role you know as opposed to just being for coverage they were more intended to just get after the quarterback i think like stylistically you could compare him to maybe khalil mack even though bill belichick scoffs at that idea right like, Reporter asked him whether, like, he compared Khalil Mack to Lawrence Taylor, and like, Bill Belichick like laughed at him. But I'd also say, like, in terms of versatility, I could also compare him to like Von Miller in his prime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Jump back into coverage, but also just obliterate the the tackle on the edge. I would tend to agree with that as well. I mean, like, yeah, like you can't really make an apples to apples comparison but just in terms of style that's as close as you're gonna get exactly what i would say is again i'll reiterate that you're probably your best bet as a listener would be to just go on youtube and look up lawrence taylor highlights and you'll see just how he completely destroyed (laughs) the, the league amazing athlete aside how much of his impact was just a consequence of the times Mm. You know, like teams were playing differently. The philosophical shift on offense, a lot of it did happen as a result of how amazing of a player he was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we credit him as being like the best defensive player of all time yeah. in, mo- in most NFL circles. Could we say that a player like Lawrence Taylor could ever emerge again because of how like nowadays, how offenses change on a consistent basis, there isn't really that impact player on defense that'll completely change how teams perform. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you wanted to just by pure impact on the game, quote unquote impact, I guess you could compare him to Aaron Donald in that way of just like, there's no, you have to double team Aaron Donald, either that or he's just going to run right through you. Yeah. In that way, even though obviously Aaron Donald's more on the inside as a defensive tackle, not an outside linebacker, but that's kind of the, you know the general impact that that Lawrence Taylor would have. But I do agree that obviously the blocking schemes are a lot more sophisticated at this point, to where it makes it a lot yeah. more difficult for somebody like a Lawrence Taylor to have that sort of an impact. Have you reached the point where things are just you know? Offenses are so multiple now that they sort of have solutions to, they already have built in solutions to a lot of these problems mm-hmm. that have already arisen. You know what I mean? Like, is there going to be a defensive player that could come? I don't, I could argue that there, we won't probably never see another defensive player as impactful as Lawrence Taylor. I don't think so either. 
you know, it, it's hard to obviously call it at this point because obviously it's it, he's grown to such a legendary status. But I mean, yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find someone, especially in today's game, I think. But here's the other thing: like, will we, with all the amazing defensive players that have come through, especially in our era of watching football, mm. will talk about a player like will we talk about Aaron Donald or JJ Watt in the same regards as we talk about Lawrence Taylor not unless not unless the Rams or the Texans win Super Bowls you know yeah because of them and I don't even think like I don't even think it's possible to talk about JJ Watt in that regard because if they do win a Super Bowl in the near future it'll be on a declining portion of his career yeah Whereas Aaron Donald, I still think he's in the middle of his prime. And yeah. if they do win, I think the credit will go more towards the offense versus the defense. I think so, too. If you're thinking of J.J. Watt, maybe if they had won it again when he was ascending. Because you could argue that when they won it in 1990, it was on kind of a downswing of his career. Um, mm-hmm. But they also won it in 86, which would have been basically considered to be his prime. Um, yeah. Well, that's the that's the critical moment, right? Is yeah. 1986, and right. it's also how much do you credit that side of the team to the victory? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's the example of like the the 2013 Seahawks. Those defensive players will forever be put on a high pedestal because of how they obliterated Peyton's offense, right? Right, right. Now, and the whole Legion of Boom. We won't talk about the 2013 Seahawks offensively as much as defensively. Right. Well, I think offensively, you know, we talked about Marshawn Lynch a little bit. But, yeah, I agree. The Legion of Boom is definitely going to be more given more credit in that sense. But at the time of Lawrence Taylor's retirement, he would actually end with 132 and a half sacks. Because sacks were not counted as a statistic until his second year in 1982, the actual total is counted to 141. So he had nine and a half sacks that were technically not counted in his rookie season. And he was actually inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1999. So clearly a Giants great and someone definitely worth mentioning uh, or singling out in the history of the New York Giants for sure. I guess he's the most symbolic player of that era of Giants football. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say so. I mean, yeah, like I said, he's number three on the list of top 100 players of all time. So, like, if that doesn't say it, then, you know, what, what else will? I think we're going to wrap it up from here. Obviously, some of the astute listeners may already know what's coming up next. But suffice it to say that the Giants and Lawrence Taylor were really heating up in 84 and 85 and led up to what happened in, 1986. in 1986 exactly the the glory of 1986 make sure to stay tuned for that check us out on twitter the check down charlie's on twitter and thanks again for listening guys we'll speak to you soon thanks for listening to the check down charlie's podcast check us out on youtube spotify itunes and podbean don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.